This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, Bertie Ahern's return to politics. Why did he go away in the first place? And do voters want him back? When former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern was readmitted to the Fianna Fáil party a few weeks ago, a reporter asked him if he was rehabilitating his image. No, I, I, I don't have to rehabilitate myself anywhere. <laughs> uh, thankfully, you might, I don't. But why would Ahern have to rehabilitate his image? When he resigned in 2008, controversy was swirling around him. The country was learning about his finances from the Mahan Tribunal, an investigation into political corruption that was then underway. But Ahern has always denied any wrongdoing. On today's podcast, I'll talk to Irish Times reporter Colm Keena, who will remind us exactly what happened at the Mahan Tribunal, the evidence, the denials and the unanswered questions. But first, in Saturday's Irish Times, a new opinion poll revealed what Irish people think about Bertie Ahern's return. Pat Leahy is the Irish Times political editor. Hi, Pat. Hi, Bernice. Pat, tell us about the poll that we ran on Saturday. We included a couple of questions about Bertie Ahern and his prospects for the presidency. Mr Ahern, of course, has recently rejoined Fianna Fáil after a period in exile, leading to much fevered speculation that he's planning uh, a run for Orson when uh, Michael D. Higgins reaches the end of his second term, and that's in the autumn of 2025. Now, noticeably, uh, Mr Ahern has not said at any stage that he has no intention of running. Our poll on Saturday, however, didn't include a great deal of encouragement for his presidential prospects. The first question we asked was if Bertie Hearn was to run for the presidency in 2025, those who would definitely not vote for him uh, amount to 51% of respondents. 14%, a further 14% said they would probably not vote for him, but it would depend on the other candidates. Just 13% said that they would probably vote for him, but it would depend on the other candidates. And just 7% said they would definitely vote for him. So um, we shouldn't uh, underestimate Mr Hearn's skills as a campaigner. He is, after all, the man who, who won three general elections uh, on, the, on the trot. But certainly from these numbers, he faces the steepest of uphill battles if he wants to become president. Did the polls that you conducted, did that take age into account? Oh yeah, for sure. Almost twice as many of the oldest voters uh, say that they would definitely not vote for Bertie Hearn as, uh, as the youngest voters. Another way of saying that, much more potential support for Mr Hearn amongst uh, the youngest voters. But the greatest number of youngest voters, looking specifically at those 18 to 24 uh, year old voters, the most common response from them was to say, don't know or no opinion. 41% of them had no opinion on, on Mr Hearn's putative run for the presidency. Very possible, I suppose, that some of them had never heard of him. In 2006, Irish Times journalist Colm Keena broke the story that Bertie Ahern was being investigated by the Mahan Tribunal. Colm, what was the Mahan Tribunal? The Madden Tribunal was established in 1997 and it sat down in Dublin Castle and it was charged with investigating allegations of corruption in the planning system and it happened against the backdrop of an ongoing controversy of allegations of corruption 
and up the up the castle yard, higher up the castle yard in Dublin Castle, at the same time, there was a wholly separate tribunal that was investigating allegations of payments to the former Taoiseach, uh, Charles High, and to Fianna Gael's Michael Lowry by Dunn Stores, and that morphed into a, into another tribunal that again looked at those two people and alleged uh, payments to those people. So the, Dublin Castle was really busy from about 1997 with all these allegations into corruption. So the, the tribunal started in 1997, it, it cranked on and on and on. When was Bertie Ahern called to give evidence? Can I just throw it into a bit of context first? First of all, he was the Taoiseach in 1997 when, we, when he set up both these tribunals. The one that was looking into uh, his former party mate, uh, Charlie High, and uh, the one that was looking at planning allegations. Bertie would have given evidence in relation to dodgy financial dealings, if you want to put it like that, concerning Charlie High and made a big effort to distance himself from it. Then he would have made a hard speech about low standards not being acceptable in Fianna, Fianna Fáil, which everybody knew was directed at Charlie High. So he made a big effort to distance himself from the corruption that was um, going on at the time and that everybody was talking about in Irish society. The investigations into his personal finances began sometime in 2006. He himself came to give evidence in 2000 and late 2007, early 2008. Huge numbers used to turn out to watch his evidence. What questions were being put to him? Well, what the tribunal was trying to do was have a look at this suggestion that this property developer had made payments to, to Bertie Ahern. He said, well, let's have a look at your bank accounts and see if you got all these monies that people say you were given. He said, well, you can't do that because between 1987 and 1993, I didn't have a bank account. You see, that would be fine if he was just, you know, Joe Soap. But he was Minister of Finance at that time and he had no bank account. It was bonkers. It was a bonkers evidence. And none of, he got really aggressive about it when he was quizzed about it. And he said to one of the tribunal counsels, you know, some people dye their hair yellow and some people put rings in their nose. I cash me checks and I keep the cash. And his evidence was that he had a safe in the Department of Finance and that he had a safe in his constituency building St. Luke's in Drumcondra and that he used to send the staff down to the bank with his checks. They'd cash the checks, bring back big lumps of cash, thousands of pounds, put them on his desk if he wasn't there or handed to him if he was there and he'd put it in safe. And then when he did open accounts, there were these significant lodgements to it. So his explanation was that he'd saved all this cash in his two safes in the Department of Finance and in, in his constituency building St. Luke's during the period when he didn't have a bank account. And then he'd lodged these savings in the, in the accounts he subsequently opened. And that explained these big payments, €165,000, uh, in total, they counted up being lodged these bank accounts. So the tribunal began to look at that proposition, and then they found troubling stuff, such as some of the lodgements equated to sterling amounts, or there was evidence that there were sterling lodgements. And then one lodgement was the exact equivalent of forty-five thousand dollars being lodged in the bank on that date. It was the same amount of Irish pounds as you would have gotten on the exchange rate of the day. And Bertie Ahern said, I never lodged $45,000, but the tribunal didn't leave him. In one instance, he said that he, he gave a speech in a hotel in Manchester 
and uh, I think he used to like to go to Manchester for matches, for soccer matches, and he was in, he gave a speech in Manchester, and afterwards the people in the hall had a whip around for him and gave him Sterling, and he brought that home, and he didn't, uh, the tribunal didn't believe that story. Even the house where he now lives, which is just off Griffith, Griffith Avenue, it's a kind of a, a red brick townhouse small development. And that house um, was bought by this guy from Manchester called Michal Wall, and um, and uh, nominally, and then two years later uh, sold to Bertie Iron. But the tribunal investigated it and came to the conclusion that it was always Bertie Iron's house. And for some reason, Michal Wall had put his name to it and was bought for whatever uh, price it was bought for at the time, and two years later sold it to Bertie Iron. So we don't know the real reason for that either. They were banging on and banging on about how. what about this one, what about that one? And then they came up with another lodgement. They said, that, that's Sterling. And he said, but well, sometimes they won money on the horses. And that, that, I think they gave up then, you know. It was disclosed in the Irish Times that the tribunal was investigating payments that had actually been made to him. And that caused a big Ferrari. And he went on television and 6-1 News, spoke to Brian Dobson. On Christmas week, 1993... Uh, my solicitor, the late Jerry Brennan, who has been a, a long friend uh, of mine, uh, he um, had asked uh, friends of mine, uh, unknown to me and uh, unelicited by me, uh, to um, you know, make a, a contribution to help me because he knew what my financial state at the time. And said, oh yeah, all this money, I got money, uh, and the reason I had all this money was my friends had to dig out and he started to mention all these fellas who'd given him a dig out. Dermot Crew, Barry English, and Paddy Riley, who was a different Paddy Riley. He's including a chap called Paddy the Plaster, who he differentiated from another former friend of his called Paddy the Butcher. And I think the whole nation just went, what? So the total figure now at this stage then is 38,000. 38,000. Uh, I was beholding to none of them or them to me uh, for many political issues. There were people who were well known to be uh, to be very close with me. A lot of... People came in and said, yeah, that's true, that happened. But then one guy came in called Porrick O'Connor from NCB Stockbrokers and he said, no, I have no idea what he's talking about. I first learned about it when he, he was talking to Brian Dobson on the 6-1 News, you know, and I, I never gave him money towards any takeout, which was extraordinary evidence and left us all scratching our heads. Can I put to you, on the other hand, uh, what Mr. Joseph Brian, Brian McCracken had to say? He said that it is quite unacceptable that a member of Doyle Aaron, and in particular a cabinet minister, should be supported in his personal lifestyle by gifts made to him personally. And this is what you had to say in response to that. You said that uh, Mr Justin McCracken stresses, and I quote Bertie Aaron here, stresses a point I have repeatedly emphasised, that public representatives must not be under a personal financial obligation to anyone. Now, at well, the very least, there's an appearance there that you're under a personal financial obligation to this group. Well, I, I don't accept that, um, Brian, one bit. Uh, the difference of talking about somebody taking millions and somebody taking hundreds of thousands um, in exchange for contracts and other matters and taking what is relatively small contributions um, from friends who had a clear understanding they were paid back. I, I do not equate those. Um, if I was have to take several hundred thousand pounds or several million from people where I had no association with um, uh, or people that were totally distant in business interest, that would be totally, totally wrong. a Taoiseach why did he say he needed a dig out from his pals he said uh, he was separated from his wife he wanted to make a fund for 
his savings were got, were depleted. He wanted to make a fund for the education of his children. But I think, you know, looking at it, it looked like a man who'd been, he was at the peak of his powers. The country was rich beyond its wildest imagination. 2006, the height of the bubble. Perhaps people were feeling nervous about it because it seemed like it was perhaps too good to be true and there was something wrong about it. There were some warnings that the whole thing was going to blow up. He was very much associated with it. And then it looked like he was completely collapsing because he just couldn't answer these simple questions. You know, can you explain these transactions through your accounts? And he comes out with these stories that everybody just thought were so weird. I mean, what was the sort of public reaction, do you remember, at the time? Like, the the tribunal did not find that Bertie Hearn was corrupt. Yeah, and there's two things about that. So, at one stage during the evidence, uh, there was a dispute over whether a particular lodgement had been sterling or not sterling, and he said it wasn't sterling, I never lodged sterling or whatever. And then he was away, I think it was St. Patrick's Day or something, and he was away. And his secretary, who used to do the lodgement syndrome Condra from from St. Luke's, the constituency building, she was brought into the witness box and the barristers were putting it to her, look, here's the evidence, here's the evidence. She said, I've no memory of, of ever, you know, lodging Sterling for, for our boss, you know. But they confronted her again and again with the evidence and she broke down in tears and at one stage she said, I just don't want to be here. And then she admitted, you know, it must have been Sterling or whatever. And the public didn't really didn't like that, you know. And they didn't like Bertie Ahern like hanging around like that, I think. But it's also worth saying that when the story first broke and the controversy first exploded, um, there was a huge kerfuffle in the doll and in the political system and everybody dumped on, on Bertie Ahern. And this was maybe before the, the boom had bust uh, and he was still in power. Then a poll came out and it showed that all the opposition politicians who'd been dumping on Bertie had gone down in popularity and his popularity had gone up. So for the, for the tribunal, he essentially just stuck to his line that this money was, his pals gave him all this money mm. and that's that. Pretty much, pretty much. And in the end, uh, when they started really nailing him on the sterling thing, he came out with, uh, you know, sometimes won money on the horses when I was in England. And I think then that at that stage they decided, well, you know, we've tried, that's your position. There's no point in going round round the houses about this. There was a man called, Des O'Neill was the... Uh, the senior counsel at the time and he was very meticulous and he'd come back again and again with new evidence and um, Bertie O'Hearn was very you know adamant in his evidence and said he'd never been next or near any corrupt payments in his life there were three judges uh, in charge of the tribunal at this stage in their report they said he won't tell us where the money came from so we can't say where it came from and we still don't know where it came from and how come we still don't know if you find, you look in somebody's bank account, you see all these lodgements that look like they were sterling or, or dollars and you say to somebody, where'd you get that? And they say, I'm not telling you. Well, then what do you do after that? You're stuck. One of the findings, I, I was looking at the report and it found that the former Taoiseach Bertie Hearn failed to truthfully explain the source of money. So one of the upshots, of course, was that it, it pushed Bertie Hearn into the political wilderness. He, he wasn't fired from, from Fianna Fáil, but he, he resigned before he could be pushed. I think that's fair to say. So, but in the interim then, has Bertie Hearn commented at all about the findings of the tribunal? Has he talked about the tribunal at all? Yeah, he, he rejected the findings and, and you know, uh, maintained his evidence was correct. 
He didn't talk about it much after that. I think it was in 2012, maybe. No, not 2012, but more recently than that. He, or 2018, he was uh, being interviewed in Germany on camera and uh, about the Good Friday Agreement. And the uh, reporter brought up the issue of the tribunal's findings and he took issue with that. Why you don't uh, want to talk about no, these no, things? No, I, no, I want to tell you, I, want, I, I agree to meet you on the Good Friday Agreement. We've done that, so we're finished. Thank you very much. All right. And then he walked out in the middle of the interview. One other observation I'd make, you know, for what it's worth, is he became a kind of persona non grata and there were a lot of strong feelings about him because of the tribunal and the tribunal's findings and his inability to explain his money. But you have to remember at the same time that by the time the tribunal's findings came out, the, you know, the economy had collapsed. A lot of people were suffering. There were cutbacks. There were, you know, people in negative equity. People's lives turned upside down. So, you know, separating the, the, the rancor over that from the uh, people's response to the tribunal's evidence, I think it's kind of difficult because, you know, he was loved when everything was gone. Hey-ho. And as ev- everything went belly up, then he was the worst person on the planet because he kind of represented it on the way up and then he represented it on the way down. Bertie Ahern, 1997, he sets up the tribunal. Do you think, and I, I, maybe I'm making it sound like a bit of a thriller here then, do you think then that he was always living in fear that the tribunal would catch up with him? Um, personally, I do. I think that he was uh, obsessed about his career, obsessed about uh, his position in, in society. He obviously always knew that there was this issue with his personal finances, that the, you know he hadn't had a bank account, that there'd been all these lodgements to his accounts. He knew about them in the late 80s, early 1990s. Then he becomes Taoiseach in 97 against the backdrop of this outrage about political corruption and is directed at the planning system and at Charlie Ai and he does his best to distance himself from it but all the time the two tribunals are up there in Dublin Castle digging away, digging away and he's, I presume, all the time thinking I'm the most successful politician in Ireland since De Valera and goes for my third term as Taoiseach unprecedented sort of political success but all the time those guys up there in Dublin Castle they could find their way onto a trail that'll lead them to all this, uh, all these questions to do with my personal finances that I'm going not going to be able to answer. And I think he was always aware of that. I think it must have caused enormous tension inside him, and that when eventually the the Irish Times published its original story and it became a political issue, it's one of the reasons that I think he reacted so badly because it must have been the strain on him must have been enormous that something he'd set in motion was now going to destroy him. And I'm going to throw another date at you, and that is 2009, because that's when you were in the Supreme Court. The Man Tribunal touched a lot of people in a lot of ways, but it brought you into the Supreme Court. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, that was an interesting experience for a reporter. We broke the story in the Irish Times, I think, in, in late 2006, that the tribunal was investigating Bertie Ahern's uh, finances. And the reason why it was such a big story really was there had been quite a number of stories about new allegations about this person, new allegations about that person over the years. But what was different about this one was at the time 
Bertie O'Hearn was such an enormously popular figure and powerful figure. And it wasn't an allegation. They were, they were investigating the reason for payments that it was accepted had actually been made. And that's why that, then he came out with the, um, the dig out story. So what happened then inside here in the Irish Times was we got a letter from the tribunal saying that if we had any documents to do with the, the tribunal's private investigations, we had to produce them. And they had a right to say that, I think. So myself and the then editor of the, uh, of the Irish Times, Geraldine Kenley, uh, destroyed any documents we had. Because? Well, Geraldine's feeling was that there was a case in the Guardian some years earlier where a civil servant had anonymously sent documents to the Guardian about nuclear bombs in, in Greenham Common or something like that. And then there had been court orders to produce any documents and the the, the, editor, the then editor had handed over the documents because there was nothing on the documents to show where they'd come from. However, it turned out there was a little code up the corner that showed what photocopier the document had been photocopied on. And then it was inside the Department of Defence and then there were only a small number of people within within that section of the Department of Defence who got to use that photocopier. So then the person who leaked the documents, I think her name was Sarah, Sarah Tisdale, she decided she'd fess up because otherwise her colleagues would be would be under suspicion. And I think she might have gone to jail and the editor might have resigned. Geraldine was very conscious of that. She was afraid that if you handed over these documents, you would effectively be revealing your source. Exactly, exactly. And then I shredded the documents. We told the tribunal that. They weren't impressed by that at all. And they had us down and we, we gave evidence. And we said we didn't really want to answer questions that might help their inquiry. They were now conducting inquiry into how had this information been leaked. So they were conducting this inquiry. It was in public. We were being asked questions in, in the witness box and we were said we don't want to answer your questions um, in order to protect sources. Then it went to the High Court because the Tribunal asked the High Court to tell us to answer the questions. And we made the same argument. The issue before the court was journalists have a right to protect their sources. It's not an absolute right. Tribunals have an obligation to do their duty and, and report to the Eurocus. Uh, and in this instance, where did the balance lie? They found the balance lay with the tribunal and we were wrong. So then that went to the Supreme Court and there was a five-judge sitting at the Supreme Court that assessed the same matter again and came to a different finding, found that our uh, right in this instance to protect sources uh, was a valid one. However, our decision to shred the documents rather than tell the tribunal we're not giving them and go down to the court and fight the point. In other words, if you might want but it take the law into our own hands, was a reprehensible act. And for that reason, normally when you win a case, the other side pays pay the costs, the legal costs, so for that reason, the Supreme Court decided that just to punish us for doing something that was reprehensible, we should pay the legal costs, which were very substantial. So that was really that. But uh, it did it did establish um, an Irish court's recognition of the uh, importance of the confidentiality of journalistic sources, as uh, is inherently uh, contained in the European Convention of Human Rights. Pat Leahy, we've been talking to Colm Keena about the Mahan Tribunal. 
Bertie Ahern told reporters that his image didn't need to be rehabilitated. On this evidence, the evidence of the poll, is it fair to say that a lot of voters mightn't agree? There's kind of mixed evidence uh, in in the polls. So the second question that we asked about Mr Hearn was, which of the following first comes to mind when you think of Bertie Hearn's time in government? And we gave them a number of, of options. First one was, as the Taoiseach during a period of economic transformation, only 5% identified or that was their principal identification of Mr. Hearn. Second one was as a Taoiseach leading up to the crash of the Irish economy in 2008, 23% said that was what first came to mind. As a key player in the Northern Ireland peace process, 25% said uh, that was what came to mind. And as a politician whose finances were investigated by the Mahan Tribunal, 27% nominated that. Those who said they didn't know or had no opinion on it was 22%. So you can see there, voters are kind of evenly divided then on the crash, the Mahan Tribunal and the peace process. And actually, I think that, you know, whether his intention to run for the presidency is, is, is really there or not, I have my doubts. I think that that's what this kind of current round of exposure from Bertie Ahern is about. It's about his, his legacy, about emphasising his role in uh, achieving peace in Northern Ireland. We're approaching 25th anniversary of the Good Friday uh, Agreement. And I suspect that is what Mr Ahern wants us to focus on. But my contribution, hopefully will be working with the Taoiseach, with the Tarnished, with the, you know, as I did with Simon Coveney, you know, trying to work and get the institutions in the north and get that right. That, that's where I see my role. I don't now, he said that one of the reasons he's rejoining Fianna Fáil is to help to get Stormont up and run again, to get the institutions up and run again. Do you think that him joining Fianna Fáil at this juncture will help with that? I think we can take it that Mr Hearn's determination or his commitment to help achieve uh, a solution in, in the North is pretty sincere. I mean, not alone did he devote much of his uh, time as Taoiseach to the North, but uh, he, he has continued to be involved since then, I understand, and has maintained contacts not just with nationalist politicians, but with uh, with unionist and loyalist politicians. And I think those contacts have continued right up to the present day. I think it's also fair to point out that Mr. Hearn is one of the perhaps small number of Southern politicians who continues to carry a clout with unionist and, uh, and, and loyalist politicians and representatives. And he's one of the few politicians from Dublin that, um, uh, that loyalists and unionists actually trust. Um, so I, I think he can certainly play a role. My understanding is that he is playing something uh, of, of, of a role uh, in that regard as to whether his membership or otherwise of Fianna Fáil has any bearing on that, I, I, I wouldn't have thought so. I think that, you know, unionists and loyalists who engage with Bertie Hearn do so because of his standing, because of his achievements, rather than whether he's a member of Fianna Fáil or not. Thanks very much, Pat. That's all for today. For full access to journalism from the Irish Times, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. 
This episode was presented by me, Bernice Harrison, and produced by Declan Conlon. In the News will be back on Wednesday.